morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, what a magnificent God you are to have created us and loved us to the extent that you designed us for relationship with you. And when we forfeited it by our sin, you were long-suffering with us. You were patient with us. You passed over former sins, waiting for the cross when the Lord Jesus would atone for those sins that we might enjoy you once again. What a magnificent God you are. Father, we we come to you this morning as a collection of souls formerly blind to these things. And we are so thankful that you have opened our eyes to see the wonder of the good news, to be able to sing with with our hearts fully engaged what we've just sung. Where else can we go? Jesus is the one we are made to know. We're so grateful to you, Father, that you have granted us to know him. And it is with great anticipation now that we open your word and with gratitude that we, we we thank you for bringing before us the passage that you have wherein we are able to not only rehearse our own call to you but be reminded what it means to follow Jesus what it means to see him rightly to leave everything behind to follow him We pray that you would help us to to love these things anew and to grow in affection for the Lord Jesus. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, your son and our brother. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. This morning we'll be considering verses 16 through 20, just five verses. We, we won't always take this few verses, occasionally we may take fewer, but this morning it's 16 through 20, and as you're, as you're finding your place there, let's stand together as is our, as our practice to honor the Lord's Word. We'll read Mark chapter 1. Beginning in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. 
And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You may be seated. So what is your thing? What's your thing? What is it that makes you, you? The, the center of your identity, the center of your world. For, for these guys, it was fishing. It was all they knew for, for generations. It wasn't just a hobby for them like, like it is for some of us, but it was how they put bread on the table. It was their life. As they looked outside each day and saw what the weather was going to be, that was a big deal to them. That, that had everything to do with whether or not they were going to be able to make a living that day. As they, as they looked at the Sea of Galilee, they didn't just see nice scenery, but they saw the office. That was where they did their thing. Fishing was their thing. It was, it was in a sense, their world. And Jesus comes along and calls them to follow Him. He's offering them a new world, a new kingdom. But to follow Him, they're going to have to leave their thing behind. Fishing can't be their thing anymore. They have to leave the nets behind, leave the boat behind, leave their fishing partners behind. All that goes. Fishing is no longer their thing. And so what does Jesus say will be their thing if they follow Him? Fishing, but, but a completely different kind of fishing. See, Jesus takes their livelihood, which is fishing, and He uses it for a, a nice metaphor for a radically different trajectory of life, a completely new thing. They're, they're going to be doing what, what, what Jesus does. He, he, it, what He does when He calls people is he, he asks them to leave everything behind and take up His mission. And what is Jesus' mission? Well, we're going to find that that His mission is making, disciple-making disciples. That's what Jesus does. He makes disciple-making disciples. So to follow Him is to leave everything behind and do that, to make disciple-making disciples. And this scene that we've just read is significant in that it introduces the first disciples, which brings into the narrative one of two groups with which Jesus is going to interact and at times have conflict, which moves the narrative along throughout this book of Mark. Those two groups are, of course, the disciples, and then the others, the others are the, the, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests. And in Jesus' interaction and conflict with those two groups, we're going to have those questions answered for us that we began to ask last week. Those questions, if you remember, are, who is Jesus? Why did He come? And what does it mean to follow Him? And so by placing this story here toward the beginning of the narrative, Mark gets us thinking already about what it means to follow Jesus. And he does that by showing right here that Jesus calls people to follow Him. That's the first point in your notes. Jesus calls people to follow Him. Calls people to follow Him. We want to make sure that as we read these verses, we, we do so in light of what we've already seen. So back up, back up a couple of verses to verse 14 and 15 that we looked at last week. There we read, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. And then, as we've just read, Jesus calls these men to follow him. Now, when Jesus calls them to follow him, he's not calling for an additional step after repenting and believing. So it's not repent, believe, and then for the extraordinary person, you follow Jesus. But rather, with the call to follow me, Jesus is saying, look, this is part of what it, mean, what it means to believe the good news. Now, let, let's, let's take a brief moment to, to rehearse together what this good news is, the gospel. What is it? Well, we'll, we'll think of this through the experience of these Jewish fishermen, and we'll do so keeping in mind that their story is ultimately the same as ours. The good news starts with some really bad news. They come from a long line of sinners rebelling against God, and their rebellion has brought upon them the wrath of God in the form of temporal estrangement from Him and eternity in hell. And the worst part of of that whole picture is that they are unable to have any kind of meaningful relationship with God ever. And the reason that that is, is awful is because He is so wonderful and they've been designed only to flourish in a relationship with Him. So because they're separated from Him, they can only malfunction. So they've, they've been banished from God's kingdom. They desperately need someone to remove their sin and its penalty so that they can be returned to God's kingdom and enjoy Him forevermore. But they're incapable of doing it. That's the really bad news. The great news that Jesus is bringing now is, hey, I'm here to do that very thing. And in order to, to have what Jesus is offering, though, this, this kingdom of God, they have to turn from their sin, turn from, from their kingdom, and give their lives over completely to Jesus in faith. Now, what the disciples don't know at this point, but, but which we do know because we know the rest of the story, is that Jesus is going to rescue them from their sin and its penalty by taking that sin upon Himself on the cross and dying for it and then being raised from the dead. So when Jesus says, believe this good news, He's not just saying, agree with this set of facts, but He's actually gathering a movement of people, as we see in this story. He's calling people to follow Him. That's part of what it means to believe the good news. You believe the good news in that you, you, you latch on to Jesus Himself. And so he starts with four fishermen. He comes, upon, he comes upon the first two of them, Peter and Andrew, and he finds them actively fishing. And then later on he comes upon James and John and he sees them preparing to fish. They're, they're mending their nets. And that, that is interesting because what is Jesus doing here? If, if, we, if we think about it, Je- Jesus is fishing. So who is Jesus? Remember, that's one of our big questions. Who is Jesus? Jesus is a fisherman. Why did He come? He came to fish for souls. That's His thing. He is gathering souls into His kingdom, the kingdom of God. So He saw these four and claimed them. And we want to pause right here for just a second and 
and remind ourselves that we need to be cautious about the limitations of this metaphor of fishing. Because when Jesus fishes, it's not like when I go fishing and there's a great deal of doubt about whether or not something's going to be caught. When Jesus fishes, it's like when Mark Trammell goes fishing. That fish is getting caught. So Jesus, Jesus set his sight on these four men from eternity past. They're his. He's just coming to get them. So the text says here that he saw Simon and Andrew. And then he saw James and John. And th- think with me for a second about the fact that he started with these guys. You know, if you're, if you're going to build a kingdom, who, who do you want to start with? How, how do you build a kingdom? If we were to ask some of the gurus of our age, maybe somebody like Elon Musk, the, the, the Tesla guy, how do you build a kingdom? Who do you want to start with? Somebody like Elon Musk might say, well, you need innovators. You've got to have people who have a track record of taking chances on things that have never been tried before. You've got to have people who, who think outside the box. Well, here with, with Simon and Andrew and James and John, you're not going to have that. They, they are fishing because their dad's fished. Their dad's fished because their dad's fished. Their dad's fished because their dad's fished. And they're fishing the way that they're fishing because that's the way people have been fishing for a long, long time. These guys are not innovators. and They're not outside-the-box thinkers. Others in our culture might say, that, well, you, be, you, you build a kingdom by looking for the best and the brightest. You find the smartest people you can. Maybe you go to like the Ivy League schools and you, and you ask, okay, who's, who's graduated at the top of the class? Well, we're going we're gonna to come up short here with these four again. Jesus intentionally builds his kingdom with weak things so that the power of the kingdom is obviously coming from him. If you're taking notes, you might write down 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 31. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 21 through 31. And Paul teaches there that this thing of Jesus building his kingdom out of weak things, this is not an accident. It's not inadvertent. It wasn't something that Jesus came came to his senses later on. It's like, why did I do that? No, this was intentional. From the beginning, Paul ends that passage by saying, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus did this intentionally so that all the power is obviously coming from him. And Jesus choosing these these lowly blue-collar guys, it isn't even intended to be like a a backdoor self-esteem booster as if the weak and despised in society, they tend to be more faithful than, than the strong and admired. So it's not like, hey, Jesus, he chooses the lowly and weak because he secretly knows that they can be the most useful. It's not that at all. And Mark's going to make that painfully obvious to us because as we, as we, walk, through, as we walk through Mark, we're going to find him making comments about their lack of understanding. These guys are like chronically confused. We're going to find them being prayerless, forgetful, and faithless. A series of situations where there's the 5,000 who need to be fed. Jesus not only feeds them in front of the disciples, but has them participate. In other words, it's their hands feeding all these people. They're right in there getting their hands dirty feeding these 5,000. A short time later, there's 4,000 that need to be fed. And the disciples are like, what are we going to do? I mean, they're forgetful and faithless. Peter, the, 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 the cream of the crop, 
He's going to talk over the transfiguration in such a way that God Almighty has to tell him to pipe down and just listen. Now, Peter's high point is, is when he's going, to make a, he's going to make this declaration that Jesus is the Christ. But th- th- that's going to be this really short moment of glory for Peter because it's going to be followed immediately by such worldly thinking on his part that Jesus is going to call him Satan. These guys rebuke children when they come to Jesus. They jockey for position among themselves. They're going to snore in Gethsemane while Jesus is in anguish. They're going to abandon Him when He's arrested. These guys, the disciples in Mark, they are the picture of weak faith, confusion, flagging zeal, and fair-weather faithfulness. In other words, they're just like us. Just like us. But Jesus is faithful to them, always, right right to the very end and beyond. And His choosing the lowly and the weak and the faithless, it serves to make much of Him. He saw these guys. When He saw them, He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew everything that was going to happen, including Mark 14.50 which is that in his darkest hour they're going to abandon him. And seeing all of that, he then initiated a relationship with him. It was after seeing them that he said, follow me. Is that a comfort? And that's comforting to me. Think with me for a second about your your own conversion. What, What was the condition of your life when the Lord Jesus called you to himself? Likely it wasn't pretty. It was in that condition that He called you to Himself. It was when we were enemies that, that Christ died for us. And think about all the many failures. <laughs> many failures since then. I mean, too many to count, right? He knew all of that before He ever called you. Before He ever called you. And Jesus, Jesus did not initiate a relationship with you because of what you had to offer Him then or since then, because He doesn't work that way. So how do we explain this? Why does Jesus call people? There's only one way to explain it. He is the flesh and blood manifestation of the great and gracious love with which the Father has loved you. And He delights to show Himself strong in you and kind to you. So this scene shows Jesus calling people to follow Him, not based on anything that He sees in them, but in spite of it, so that He might show Himself strong in them and show Himself kind to them. And all of this causes us to ask the specific question, what, is, what exactly does it mean to follow Him? So we've seen that Believing the good news entails following Him. Well, then what exactly does it mean to follow Him? Not only does this passage encourage us to ask that question, but it actually begins to answer that question too. And the next two points in your notes are part of that answer. What does it mean to follow Him? So first of all, we see that Jesus, following Jesus entails leaving all else. It entails leaving all else. Peter and Andrew... They left their nets in verse 18. And James and John, their father, they left their father, they left their boat, they left their servants in verse 20. Now, what, how, how exactly are we to understand these things? What exactly are they doing? Turn with me to Mark 8, 8 verse 34. 
We might think of Mark 8, 34 and 35 as something like a commentary on what's happening here in Mark 1. Because there in Mark 8, 34, we read, we read this. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So let's stop right there for a second. If anyone would come after me, that's exactly what the four fishermen are called to do in chapter 1. Come after me. So Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. What exactly does that mean? Relinquish control of one's life, one's plans, one's identity, one's trajectory of life, one's thing. You're you're just handing over whatever is your thing, we might say, up to the point of death in following Jesus. That's what it means to take up your cross. To To these guys, to everybody in that culture up to this point, For them, the cross is not this glorious picture of salvation. To them, at this point, it's just a picture of of torture and death. So as they're hearing this, they're understanding that that Jesus is calling them to lay aside their lives up to and including the point of torture and death in order to follow Jesus. In other words, I'm, I'm not living for me anymore if I follow Jesus. I'm living for Him even to the point of death. Now, verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Now, when Jesus says, whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, He intends life in two different senses there, okay? To, to save one's life in the sense that Jesus means here is to withhold one's life from Jesus, to to retain control of one's own trajectory. I'm going to keep doing my own thing. I'm going to keep building my own kingdom. I'm going to keep living as my own master. If you do that, what Jesus is saying is that you're going to lose your life in the ultimate sense of not having eternal life with Him when you die. Everybody's still going to die. But if you withhold this life from Jesus, saying, "I'm, I'm still going to be the master of my life, When you die, there will be no eternal life with Him for you. Now, on the other hand, if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, meaning if you give Him control of your life, if, if you build His kingdom, live for Him, do His thing up to and even including the possibility of literally dying for Him, well, then you gain eternal life with Him after you die. And that is what's happening in chapter 1. These fishermen are denying themselves, taking up their crosses, following Jesus. They left everything to follow Jesus. They left their livelihoods, their freedom, their ambitions, their way of life. In a sense, they laid down their lives to follow Him. And and think about what that may have meant for them. There, There had to have been strained relationships I mean, we see James and John leaving their dad there with a boat. I mean, if, if Zebedee, their dad, if he wasn't already bald, I, I imagine he rubbed himself to a shine over this. Y- you're doing what? It's Zebedee and sons fishing. 
Zebedean sons, not Zebedee fishing. You don't have sons in order to do the business by yourself. This is, this is a cultural thing that we may not understand. People change careers all the time here in, in 21st century America. You don't change careers in, in first century Judea. You don't do it. First century Galilee, ancient Near East, it doesn't happen. If your dad's a fisherman, you're a fisherman. And he was a fisherman because his dad was a fisherman. There's no changing careers. We know from later in the passage that Peter has a mother-in-law. Generally, you don't have one of those unless you have a wife. So think about the, the odds of, of, of Peter not getting at least a little bit of side eye over this whole thing. You're doing what? You're following whom? And you're not going to do what anymore? Strained relationships. Strained relationships over following Jesus. Now, as we start to think about what this means for us, when Jesus calls us to follow Him, is He expecting us to just give all our stuff away and abandon our families? Well, we, we need to think of this in the context of, of all of Scripture. There, there, are, there are other passages in Scripture that indicate we are to be good stewards of the things that God has entrusted to us. So there's, there's the assumption in the New Testament that everything that I have belongs to God, but, I, but, but I, I live with the assumption that whatever He's entrusted to me, at any moment, He may need it, His kingdom may need it, and so I hold it very loosely. Hold it very loosely. It belongs to Him. My stuff is His stuff. Everything that He's entrusted to me, I use it for His glory and to serve Him. I'm just being a steward of what He's entrusted to me. When it comes to relationships, I'm not going to abandon my family. That would be an ungodly thing according to the New Testament. And we'll see here later that, that Peter is still caring for his family. He brings, he brings Jesus to heal his mother-in-law. There's plenty in the New Testament to indicate that it is godliness to, to, to take care of our loved ones. But following Jesus in a relational sense, it simply means that he is going to be more important to me than... Spouse, parents, children, anyone. That's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 10. You may, you may also want to write down Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 38. There in Matthew 10, 34 through 38, Jesus again, he's, he's teaching the disciples. And he says this, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And we may think, man, what a horrible guy Jesus is. He's a homewrecker. Well, he explains what he means in the next verses. He says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When Jesus says, I come to bring a sword and, and not peace, what he's saying is, I, I, I come to call you to love me more than anybody else, and that is almost certainly going to cause tension in relationships. For me to follow Jesus is to say, he is going to be my first and primary relationship. I'm going to love all others well. And, the, and Jesus, the, the New Testament broadly says that that's what I'm called to do as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm going to love everybody well 
But I follow him knowing that my following him may cost me some relationships, and I'm okay with that. If, if, if somebody in my life is not going to have me unless I abandon him, then they're not going to have me because I'm not going to abandon him. It, it, it is not an unusual thing, unfortunately, for a new convert to eventually hear from family and friends, you're turning into a different person, and we don't like it. And often that's their, that's their pricked conscience talking. But the follower of Jesus has to say, I love you, and to the extent that it depends upon me, I will continue to love you well, but I will not turn back from following Jesus. Just as significant, my identity, my ambition, my plans, all of those are surrendered to Him. My, my kingdom, might say, is jettisoned. I'm not building my kingdom anymore. That's forgotten. I, I am all about building His kingdom now. Remember Jesus said in, in verse 14, Mark 1, 14, the kingdom of God is at hand now. I'm joining His kingdom. Not, not doing my thing anymore. If we think about our lives as buses. We could, we could think of life as, as just driving, driving our own bus. Well, following Jesus is not like inviting Him onto my bus so that He can make the ride a little more tolerable as I continue down my trajectory toward my destination. But rather, following Jesus is abandoning my bus on the side of the road and getting on His bus. He's driving. I go where He goes. I do what He does. His ambition is my ambition. His identity is my identity. His destination, my destination. And, and he, here's the thing to keep in mind. To, to some people, that's awful news. But to those who understand the good news of Jesus Christ, they, they see that what is really needed by the human soul is not a cleaner, better version of themselves, but more of Jesus. And they'll lay down any part of what it means to be them in order to have more of Him. I just want every bit that I can get of Him. It would be absurd to them to do otherwise. Just let me have Jesus. Now, John chapter 6 is another, another great passage Great cross-reference for thinking through all of these things. You might write down John chapter 6. There we find, especially later, the latter half of the, of the chapter, verse 20-ish and following, Jesus is saying some really hard things about what it means to follow Him, some similar things to what we've already seen this morning. Anybody who doesn't eat my flesh and drink my blood has no life in themselves. And the people hearing it, they're like, I don't think so. I'm not, I'm not into this. He's saying basically, if you, don't, if you don't have me, you can't have life. And this crowd that he's talking to started out as this enormous throng of people. And as he continues to talk about the fact that having Jesus requires giving him everything, well, he, preaches that, he preaches that crowd down to just this handful of people. And he eventually turns to the, to the 12, his 12 disciples, and says to them, Do you want to go also? You want to go away also? The last song that we sang this morning is based upon Peter's reply. Peter says, where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And that is, is the mind and heart of somebody who, who understands the good news. 
in, in light of the, the glory of who Jesus is and the forgiveness that we find in Him, it's a small thing to deny self and take up the cross. What else would we do? He's the only one who has life, and He has it in Himself. Give me Jesus. Take all this. That's a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus. Leave all else behind. My sense of identity outside of Him, I'll leave it behind. My sense of belonging outside of Him, leave it behind. My life, surrender to Him. Now, as believers, as believers, we do still struggle with this, this tendency to want to go over there to Jesus at the steering wheel and wrench it from Him in particular areas of our life. Paul refers, that, refers to that tendency as this struggle with the old self. We're supposed to put off the old self and put on the new self. You can read about that in chapters like Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3. So we still have this, this struggle in our hearts on a regular basis to let go of the steering wheel in particular areas. And, and for that reason, it may be helpful to write down a cross-reference to that Mark 8 passage that we looked at a moment ago. Remember Mark 8, 34 and 35? If anyone would come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's, there's a parallel passage in Luke 9.23. Luke 9.23 reads this way. Very similar, but one word is different. If anyone would come after me, let him, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him do this daily and follow me. And that indicates this is just a lifelong issue. It's not one and done, but, but we need regularly to say, Oh, Lord Jesus, this day, I lay it all down to follow you. So I wonder, I wonder if maybe some of our consciences are, are on us right now. There's, there's an area somewhere that we know we've been trying to take back that steering wheel, pull it back away from Jesus. And maybe, maybe for you that's a relationship. There's some relationship in your life where you have been intentionally very quiet about Jesus. You've not shared the good news with that person. Because you're fearful that it's going to cause some strain in that relationship. Or maybe, maybe you're going to lose that person. Leave it, leave it behind. Speak the name of Jesus and trust Him with what happens. Maybe there's a sin that you've cherished in your heart. A sin that's been on your conscience. And you have, you have not confessed this to the Lord. Surrendered to Him. Repented of it and left it behind. Now is the time to do that. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow Him. Maybe, maybe there is some sense in which you've been investing yourself and making a name for yourself and not for Him. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow Him. Lord, today, today, regarding this thing, this thing about which you are troubling my conscience in this moment, I, I lay this thing down. Deny myself, I take up my cross, and I follow you today. Following Jesus entails, among other things, leaving all else. And finally, following Jesus also entails calling others to follow Him. It entails calling others to follow Him. Again, Jesus is fishing here. He's catching men. What exactly does that mean? 
What does it mean that Jesus is, is catching souls? He isn't just converting people. He's, he's taking them under His wing. We're, we're going to find this as, as we move through the Gospel of Mark. He's taking these men with Him, training them, discipling them to maturity, training them for ministry. In other words, He's making disciples. That is Jesus' kind of fishing. He's making disciples. And part of making disciples is teaching them to make disciples. Jesus says here in, in this text, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is a fisher of men and he makes others to be fishers of men. So he's going to equip them to, to fish, to make disciples. And as we, as we move through Mark, we're going to see Jesus showing them, training them that as disciples, we learn from him to do what he does. That's what a disciple does. That's what a disciple is. We are people who learn from Jesus to do what He does. So disciples are people who make disciples. The last instructions that Jesus gave to the apostles before He left, according to Matthew, were along these lines. Pastor Jason's already read these for us this morning. From Matthew 28, 18 and following, Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, did, did these original disciples, did they take that seriously? Well, Pastor John and Pastor Rick have been preaching through Acts, and they've been showing us that, yeah, the, the early church, they wore themselves out doing this very thing, making disciples. And it wasn't just the apostles, but it was the church. If you want a reference for one specific example, you could write down Acts 4.31. Acts 4.31 shows it's not just the leaders of the church who are actively making disciples, but it was a culture of the whole church. They're all disciples who make disciples. They're all called followers who call others to follow. So, then a disciple... Just again, by definition, that's somebody who learns from Jesus to do what Jesus does. A disciple who doesn't make disciples, it's something of a biblical conundrum. It's, a, it's, it's in a sense, it's a disciple who doesn't follow Jesus. It's, it's what, what we might call, might call a, a living contradiction. Disciples are called followers who call others to follow. Now, what, what does it mean to, to make disciples, to, to, to gather souls? There are those who would say, it's really not that different than selling a car. It really just comes down to persuasion. You just have to learn to sell this thing. If you are really good at persuading somebody, then you're going to win souls to the Lord. And, and if you're not, you just need to work on your game a little bit. We hold that what's happening when a person is converted is that a dead person is being brought to life. That's not a sales game. You, you don't sell someone to life. That's something that only the Lord can do. I can't bring people to life. You can't bring people to life. But here's what the Bible teaches about how God brings dead people to spiritual life. He does it through our sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We share the good news of Jesus Christ, and God brings dead people to life. So what's our responsibility then 
as we seek to make disciples? Well, first, first of all, it's that we pray and share the truth persistently, 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 and we watch to see what the Lord does as we love those people that we're persistently sharing with and we're living a godly life in front of them, however imperfectly. But that right there is, is in a sense, a big problem because depending on which study you read, upwards of 80% of confessing Christians or professing Christians, 80%, upwards of 80% of professing Christians have never shared the good news with a soul. So if that's true of me, again, there's this very huge sense in which I'm not following Jesus. Now, if, if, if your conscience is, is, is troubling you a little bit right now, then, then do this with me right now. If you're taking notes or, or, or you're on your phone, write down the name of the first unbelieving person that the Holy Spirit brings to mind right now in one of your spheres of influ- influence. Write down the name of that person, maybe two or three names, purpose that, that today you will begin praying for that person and you are going to share the good news with that person. Jump into the water. Just get out there and do it. The time for waiting is past. Okay? Now, one of the mechanisms that we've encouraged is asking that person to read a book of the Bible with you. And we've suggested that Mark is a great one to do it with because it's very simple. And so you can go to that person and say, hey, would you be interested in reading the Gospel of Mark with me? We can meet together once a week. We'll read one chapter together, and then we'll just talk about it. And you walk through that book with them, looking for the answer to those three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did He come? And what does it mean to follow Him? It's a relatively non-threatening way to share the Gospel with, with somebody. So, jump into the water. Now, if, if we're engaged in doing, doing that and somebody is converted through our sharing the good news, have we then made a disciple and then, then we move on to somebody else? That's a, that's a good question to ask. Are, are we done with that person? Well, we do keep sharing the good news with others, but we're not done with that person. We're, we're going to grab that person for dear life. We're going to bring them in to the church and begin loving the hound out of them. Remember, remember that First, Thessal- First and Second Thessalonians. What was Paul conver- concerned with? He, he's not all about conversions or, or, or counting the number of people who have been converted. He is interested in seeing people cross the finish line. And and so that's what we should be all about too. When a person is converted, they decide they're going to follow Jesus. Well, then you're grabbing onto them and saying, "Well, we're going to follow Jesus together. We're going to f- cross the finish line together." And you can do all of that. You can share the good news and you can train somebody else to walk with Jesus alongside of you as a baby Christian. Now, maybe you're so wet behind the ears that you think, man, I'm being discipled myself in the things of the Lord. I can't lead somebody to know Jesus. And if I did, I couldn't teach anybody anything if they were converted. That is not true. That is not true. And do not let fear prevent you from doing any of this. Just talk about Jesus with your people. Talk about people. Talk about Jesus wherever you go around these people and just decide if somebody asks me a question that I don't know how to answer, 
That is not the end of the world. All I'll do is I'll just go to the person who's discipling me and we'll get together with this person that I'm talking to and, and we'll work together to answer that person's questions. This is what the church does. And if that person is converted, what needs to happen next? They need to be discipled just like you're being discipled. And you, you, you think, well, I don't know how to disciple them. That's not a big problem. You and the person who's discipling you, tag team disciple this new person. Can you think of something that would be more wonderful than you as, as a new believer teaching an even newer believer something that you learned a month or two ago? What a fantastic thing. You are a fresh disciple making an even fresher disciple. This is what we are to be. Disciples making Disciple-making disciples who make disciples, who make disciples. Listen, when we're called to leave Jesus, I mean, to leave all else and follow Jesus, this is what we're leaving all to do. We're leaving all to join Him in making disciple-making disciples. We're sharing the good news with people around us. And as the Holy Spirit snatches their souls, we're bringing them quickly into the church as family. And we're loving and training them to maturity in Jesus. We're following Jesus together. And then they're fishing right alongside of us. Anthony Mealy is, is one among us who's a, who's a great example of this. And by singling him out, I'm not saying that there aren't many others like him by any stretch because we're stacked here. At Providence, but but Anthony's just one who comes to mind. Anthony he works a full time job. He's got a family, but he is obviously obviously invested in building one kingdom, just one kingdom. It's not his own, but it is the Lord's kingdom. He he is invested investing in Christ's kingdom in himself. That is, he's investing in Christ's kingdom in terms of his own personal growth in Christ likeness. He's investing in Christ's kingdom in his home. He's helping his, his wives, his kids to know the Lord better. He's investing in Christ's kingdom here in this church, and he's investing in Christ's kingdom in the hurting and sinners among the lost. He, he, just, he invests a great deal of time in grabbing people and pulling them closer to Jesus. Now, you, you might look at, at Anthony and say, Man, he's, he's a busy guy. He just loves church work. He just loves church work. He's so busy doing this and this and this and this. There are things that Anthony's doing that, that no, nobody knows about in, in terms of just hours spent with people, grabbing them, pulling them closer to Jesus. And a better way of describing what's going on in Anthony is not that Anthony just loves the church or, or the church is just his thing. A better way to describe it is just that Anthony's following Jesus. He, he is a, a disciple-making disciple. Jesus is a maker of disciple-making disciples. And if we are His followers, then that's what we are. That's, that's what it means to fish like, like Jesus does. We make disciple-making disciples. To follow Him, among other things, is to leave all and do this. So, who is Jesus? He's a fisherman of souls. What did he come to do? To call others to join him in this task. What does it mean to follow him? Leave all and make disciple-making disciples. Let's pray.
Father, we, we praise you for, for your kindness to us expressed in the coming of, of Jesus to reconcile us to yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for, for snatching each of our souls. We are in this room a, a collection of souls snatched by the Lord Jesus. And we, we ask now that you would give each of us such a love for him and a vision for his work that we would just delight to daily leave everything behind and join Him, that, that we might know Him more and enjoy Him more by fishing alongside Him, making disciples. Pray, Father, that You would give us a great burden for those around us who don't know Jesus and a great burden for those around us who do know Jesus, that they might know Him more. That we would just constantly see ourselves as makers of disciples, makers of disciples. We ask these things in Jesus' name.